broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host. Hey, listeners. Hope you're enjoying your break. Joel here. Uh, Thought while you're away that we might compile uh, one or two segments uh, that we thought were most pertinent to the uh, future of uh, 2019. Well, uh, look, it's been another wonderful week in the world. Mm, um, Joel, has. I'm going to kick it straight to you for what's happening. What's happening, as always. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a bit um, caught up with what is happening over in France at the moment with these uh, yellow jacket or yellow vest protests that are going on. Are you guys I'm familiar with this? what's happening over there? No. Look, I've only seen the headline, but, you know, what's, what's, what's the implication there? Well, it, apparently... Um, uh, everyone is for, uh, you know, the prevention of um, global warming, except if they have to pay for it. Yeah. So there yeah. is a, uh, a, a fuel price increase in France that uh, is being proposed. Uh, it's now been scrapped on the back of these, uh, these uh, protests. But, uh, yeah, the French government were uh, proposing to introduce a further fuel price increase uh, by slapping on an additional tax. And uh, many of the workers have said enough is enough. We don't want to... Uh, the cost of living in France and in particularly in Paris is mm. um, yeah. too much already. It is expensive. And yeah. uh, we can't afford this. And this uh, tax, um, you know, we are going to fight against it. And uh, so it's been interesting because much of the reason as to why this uh, was, was going to be brought in was because it was supposed to disincentivize people to go and buy fuel and run cars and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, try and um, lower the levels of, uh, you know, toxic emissions from from cars. However, uh, you know, I think the uh, the French uh, civilians have said, hey... Revolted. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Come on, enough is enough. Yeah. Um, And and also it's made uh, worse by the fact that there was uh, a fair bit of discussion around that a lot of the taxes, a lot of the tax revenue that was going to be raised from this tax wasn't actually going to go into Any things that change. was going yeah. to reduce right. climate change. Yeah. yeah, So a lot of flexibility there. The French are great at uh, doing this sort of stuff. Um, well, good at a revolution. Yeah. yeah. I don't understand why they would introduce that if they didn't have an alternative. Like people still need to have transport. They need to get around. Yeah. Well, the skeptic in me suggests that much of this, uh, you know, carbon emissions tax and greenhouse mm. gas tax is really just another means for revenue raising. Big government to raise revenue to, you know, keep themselves and the establishment in in power yeah. and to, you know, feed their own self interest rather than actually delivering the outcomes that and they, uh, just they put suggest. The, the climate change facade over yeah, the top of it. Yeah, it's a cloak. It's mm-hmm. a cloak. Uh, and I think that the French have sort of woken up to that. Now, that that's, I mean, at the moment um, in France, they're, they're suggesting that. Some of the reports that I've heard is that um, it's about $6 a gallon for fuel uh, in France uh, for petrol. You mean six euros or six dollars? No, six. it's equivalent of six US US dollars. Right. Whereas in many parts in the United States, you can buy fuel in the $2 range. Yeah. You know, nice. a gallon at this current three point times. in time. Wow. So it's almost, you know, almost three times uh, the cost cool. of uh, fuel uh, yeah. in, in France is what it is in uh, in some parts of uh, 
the United States. Now, obviously, here in Australia, I think we're probably paying close to around about $2.50, would it be, a gallon, if you converted no, litres into gallons? Probably even no, more. probably four, four litres yeah. for every yeah. gallon. Okay. Yeah. So we'd be paying, you know, around five or six Aussie dollars. Yeah, we're yeah. closer to France than yep. the US. So we'd be yep. around the four-ish yeah. US dollars well, there you go. a gallon. Mm. And yet we've got more and more of the big US-style cars, the SUVs, and that than probably France does too. Mm, probably, probably. And uh, Joel, you are quite a sceptic. I am a Governments skeptic. trying to fill their coffers with no interest for the public. I do agree that governments do want to fill their coffers, but the way they do it can influence public behaviour. Mm. And, yep. you know, good on them for trying to do something, but I think they might have uh, misjudged uh, their, their population's reaction, especially when the next country is so close by, like any country in Europe, yeah. you drive over the border, you're talking, you know, mm. uh, four countries, five countries on France's border, mm. excuse my ignorance in, in the geography, um, but you just drive over the border, might only be a few k's away, <laughs> fill up your car, yeah, uh, yeah of course, there's, there's going to be some uh, inequities there. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm naturally sceptic of uh, sceptical of uh, large governments. Um, I am a, you know, it, it's just sort of Mr. Ha- Capitalist. Well, you know, I, I do believe that you know, uh, there's so much inefficiency with government that, um, and they've never ever really proved themselves to be fantastic allocators of that cash flow. Yeah. So, I know. agree. They're not very good at spending it. Yeah. But at least they can raise it in a way that influences public behaviour to maybe use low emission sources of energy. Mm. That that would be nice. Was it, was it Kerry Packer that had that famous saying when he was being questioned about tax evasion or tax avoidance? Yeah, anyone yes. who doesn't do whatever they can to stop paying taxes mm. needs to get their head red. Correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And, and didn't it go on to say, because because I don't like the way you use it, you don't yeah. manage it well. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Something that's along right. those lines. Yep. So yeah. along those lines, if they made the way people pay taxes uh, linked to behaviour, such as consuming lots of uh, energy, well, then if you want to pay less tax, well, then you stop yeah. emitting so much carbon and pay less tax that way. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, um, I guess that's that's perhaps the theory behind why they were bringing this in. However, you know, there was certainly enough scepticism amongst the French population to well, suggest that... Well, they uh, fucked it up, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. they fucked it. If, yep. if your population reacts simple. that way, you've... you've yep. You've had a balls up. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, and this is indicative of perhaps where Europe is at the moment. You know, the French population are probably very similar to, you know, the sentiment that you're seeing in, in Greece and in Italy and in many other parts around Europe where they haven't seen wages grow. They've seen an economy that's been in pretty much the doghouse for the best part of 11 years or so. Mm. Um, yep. And the cost of living continues to go up, but yet, you know, jobs are still scarce and uh, wages increases have been almost, you know, non-existent in Europe. And this is what you end up getting when you try mm. and squeeze them too hard. Yeah. You end up getting revolutions, unfortunately, or revolts, certainly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Look, what's what's the feed-in impact then on markets? Uh, I, I think it probably, by and large, has very little to do with with. You know, financial markets. I just note that you know more than anything, it's probably just a bit of a a political climate. Yeah, a risk. It's, it's indicative of the sort of political climate that we're in at the moment. Mm. The, the average person feels as though they're getting screwed. The the ones that have got the wealth uh, seem to be getting wealthier, and and the political elites and the uh, you know the one percenters you know tend to be mm. the ones that um, are being seen as uh, taking advantage of the ordinary guy. Yeah. Well, I guess there's only one solution. 
be rich. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, look, uh, on a more serious note, we're also getting to the point where uh, we're getting to a Brexit vote now. I, oh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have been... This has been going for a while. It has. So, coming to crunch time, though. Yeah, crunch time. So next Wednesday, the British uh, Parliament uh, vote on whether or not they're going to ratify the agreement between... Uh, well, ratify the agreement that uh, Theresa May's uh, government has... Um, Put together. In principle... Signed off uh, with the mm-hmm. EU, negotiated, negotiated inverted commas, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, by all looks of uh, current trends, it, it appears as though that's going to fail. So, what are the potential outcomes? Well, um, firstly, they could go ahead with the the exit if it uh, if it fails. They, the UK could go ahead with the exit if it fails and rely on the World Trade Organization to help the UK um, implement trade uh, arrangements with the EU. Um, but that would be a hard Brexit option. And uh, and I think, you know, some of the things that are sort of coming out of this, if you listen to the rhetoric, you, obviously the EU have a vested interest in making sure that the British, that the UK suffer some pain. I mean, they don't want this to be a nice, yeah. easy exit. Yeah. Yeah. They don't they want would, others getting the same idea. Yeah, but if you listen to what the outcome, what, what is, you know, you listen to what the different uh, uh, constituents are perhaps saying, it's very clear that the EU want the UK to go into a recession. Okay, mm-hmm. they probably don't want them to go into a depression, which would probably be the case if they went into a hard Brexit. Uh, but they certainly want them to feel pain. And the way that the UK are looking at this is the UK is trying to obviously stave off any sort of pain and any sort of recession that might arise. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be interesting because there's a lot of vested interests here. Um, but as it, as it currently looks at the moment, okay, what happens? If this vote fails, well, first of all, uh, the UK could rely on uh, the World Trade Organization uh, to help the UK uh, develop uh, trade arrangements with the EU. Um, that would put the UK in a very weak position. You'd probably almost instantly see the the pound sell off dramatically because mm-hmm. uh, they'd be exiting the EU with no agreement in place. No agreement yeah. in place. No agreement. So nothing. Instantly, what does that mean? Tariffs. All sorts of, you know, yep. types of penalties, border yeah. controls, border yeah. controls, all that immigration sort of stuff. controls. So you'd almost certainly have an instant, you know, cut off in the way that commerce was being done between those two major. And be major at the mercy of the others to correct. Yeah. Now, secondly, the UK could unilaterally decide to withdraw its notice to exit under Article 50 of the EU Treaty, and thereby stopping the Brexit process altogether. Uh, and maybe, you know, revisit it later on down the track. Now, this would buy some time, because remember, the, the Brexit vote was non-binding, okay? So this, this referendum uh-huh. was not a compulsory referendum. Yes. Um, this was uh, put to the, the public to vote on, yep. but they were not bound to actually follow the, the Brexit process. 34% voted for Brexit, 32 voted against mm. Brexit. Yeah. A lot of abstains. And 34 just didn't vote at all. Yeah. Yeah. So this would buy time, obviously, and and things would continue on as the status quo, and there'd be no hard Brexit, but there'd be no resolution, and this would be an ongoing saga that will probably continue on for some time. You'll probably end up getting some political dis... Uh, disharmony in the UK off the back of that because mm. it was obviously voted for and if the people aren't being listened to then yeah. there could be all sorts of political ramifications in the UK mm. itself. Thirdly, if the withdrawal agreement uh, legislation is defeated, the opposition would most likely uh, move for a vote of no confidence in the government. Um, so that would generally probably trigger a general election in the UK which would almost certainly see Theresa's May, Theresa May's uh, Tory party uh, kicked out. Um now, from my understanding, I think there would also need to be some agreement 
in regards to the Tories agreeing to some sort of vote of no confidence because obviously the Tories are in power. Mm -hmm. So in order for a vote of no confidence to get up, you would need some of the Labor Party as well as some of the Tories well, most of the Labor Party or all the Labor Party plus some of the Tories to agree to a vote of no mm. confidence. Now, that's yep. not likely to happen because the Tories are unlikely to vote for something that is going to kick them out of power. Yeah. That's right. They'd see the loss yeah. of the election coming. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, if the MPs reject the withdrawal agreement on offer and elect against a general election, the Prime Minister could call a second referendum on the Brexit issue. Now, as it currently stands, the legal precedence for this is a little bit uncertain. Uh, and what the ramifications would be following that and whether or not it could actually get up uh, and actually take place, a second referendum, is, is a little bit unclear because of um, it's never really been tested and I don't think there's any legislation that really outlines what the process would be if that was the, the pathway. Mm. So what impact is this happening as investors? Well, it's not really actually influencing the financial markets at all, to be honest with you. I mean, what's really, really driving the volatility is really much around uh, you know the U.S. Federal Reserve and uh, the U.S.-China um, mm. uh, trade uh, trade war. But, you mean you've um, got the entire government of the U.K. in disarray, yeah. fighting with the entire yeah. government of the EU, and that's causing little or no impact on financial markets. But then one person's words, yep, the head of the Federal Reserve, yeah. he's. <laughs> so, He's having huge influence Absolutely, over the financial yeah. markets. Absolutely, yeah. So we're seeing, you know, when Jerome Powell came out with his announcement last week, US stocks are up 2.83% on the back of, you know, Jerome Powell saying, hey, we're going to be a little bit more concerted and a little bit more conservative about how we go about raising rates. We're going to be a bit more data dependent. Then we had, uh, you know, reports over the weekend that uh, the US and China had come to an agreement to at least uh, stop the war and stop the uh, escalation of the tariffs. You mean the trade war? Days. Yeah. Not, not an actual war. Yeah, exactly. Calm down, trade listeners. Yeah, the They're not at war. war. Trade war. <laughs> uh, and markets rallied again off the back of that. And then you had some peanut that came out about two days after that and said, <laughs> yeah, we're still going to raise interest rates by three three times next year, who's not even, you know, I don't even think he's... Not an authority yeah, anyway. Yeah, I mean, why is he even talking? He's just a man in the street. And sure enough, you know, we have the market sell off again and give back all of those gains. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, what you're clearly seeing at the moment is that markets are not being dictated at all by what's happening with Brexit. It's really being driven by what's going on with the Federal Reserve and the China-US relations at the moment. Wow, mm. okay. Even though this is, a, is it's noteworthy. Yeah. Well, it just shows the size of um, the the UK's economy and financial market exactly in relation to the US's economy and size of their financial mm. market. Yeah. Not only is their physical economy bigger in terms of gross domestic, domestic products and the number of companies that are there, but just the amount of money mm. that is in the markets in the USA mm. just because it is a magnet for the rest of the world to come in. Mm -hmm. It's not just the USA's population, but it's the whole global market yeah. putting their money into the US markets because yeah, that's where the action is. That's where the action is. I mean, the US stock market is worth more than half of the total value of global equity markets. Yeah. You know, yep. whatever happens in the US, you know, it, um, it moves the world. It moves yeah. the world, exactly. Yeah. Imagine instead of the UK leaving the EU, imagine if it was Texas leaving the USA. That would be... That'd be massive. Of impact. Yeah. Or California leaving the USA. Absolutely. Well, California yeah. is the sixth largest economy in the world. It, it is. <laughs> wow. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. That, that would be huge. That would be massive. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting, Joel. Thank you for that rundown. Always interesting to hear how these massive headline events 
can have actually little or no impact on financial markets. Yeah. Very interesting. We're going to go to a break now. We'll be back with more after this break. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capitals Advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Uh, whenever we go through a period of volatility, it's always interesting just to sort of see what... Um what uh, is taking place and how the market unfolds. And look, I'm not going to actually speak too much on the market. I think everyone pretty much knows that you know, our view here at UGC is that we expect this correction to sort of pass very shortly. And, um, you know, probably within the next you know, few months' time, we'll probably be somewhere up back to where, to, towards where we were uh, about six to eight weeks ago. Um, and all of the signs seem to be there. The market's sort of still volatile at this point in time, carving out a bit of a bottom. Uh, we had a, a, a nice... Um, close last night or this morning on the US stock market um, but you, you often see periods of, uh, I, I think the low was actually in, uh, probably about a week and a half to two weeks ago. I think that was actually probably the low of this correction uh, and we've had a little bit of a rally from there and then we've had another bit of a pullback in the last week or so but it appears as though we're finding a little bit of strength and support around current levels which is a good sign. But markets often go through um, uh, periods of uh, backfilling and trying to build a base um, before they actually recover from those uh, corrections that we've had similar to that uh, over the last six weeks. So, you know, we might still have another two or three weeks of backfilling and uh, up and down and, and, you know, relatively volatile sort of uh, conditions. But um, all things being equal, the, the signs still look very favourable for the next several months and certainly into the next sort of 12 to 18 months. Very Joel, nice. Joel, from a technical analysis point of view, I think what's important of the last week and the low that we've had uh, recently is that it's not as low as the low that was two weeks ago. Correct. That's right. Yeah, so far we've seen a, a shallower low than, than two weeks ago. Yep. That's right. And that's, so, that's encouraging. Yep. So if there was to be a low that is lower than the low of two weeks ago, that would send a new signal that would, uh, that would change the thinking. Well, not change but, the thinking, but just create a, a different um, a different situation it obviously increases the prospect of a deeper decline than what we've had uh, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean though that it will go significantly lower because often what we do find is that uh, you, you can sometimes get undercutting of right. a prior low um, but I think uh, that what we're seeing right now looks looks as though we're starting to see that buying come in at, at key levels of support and it's uh, bouncing nicely when it gets down to those key levels of support um, so, you know, we'll have to watch this space, but uh, certainly the underlying fundamentals and the macro outlook look, um, look uh, quite encouraging still. And, um, you know, we, we fully expect that uh, we'll have a recovery at, uh, you know, sometime in the near future. On the back of that, though, uh, I am interested in uh, talking about the decline of GE. Now, a lot of people, you know, um, uh, and, and this ties into to 
our philosophy around investment, you know, and we don't advocate going big, investing in big companies necessarily just because they're big. And we have spoken in the past about the fact that there is this false sense of security uh, with investors that just because they're big, well-known brand names and uh, because they're large companies, there's this idea that they tend to be safer businesses and safer mm. shares to invest in. Well, if you've been following the, the, the disaster that is GE, General Electric, which was at one stage 18 years ago, the mm. biggest company yeah. in the world. Wow. Um, uh, since that period of time, uh, GE's shares have declined 85%, from $60 all the way down to around about $9 today. Whoa. That's AMP-like. Uh, it's probably, yeah, <laughs> worse. worse. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's probably worse. And, and there's all sorts of turmoil going on at GE at the moment. Um, it, it, recently, they just sacked their, uh, their CEO, John Flannery. He'd only been in the job for around about 18 months. Uh, after replacing Jeffrey Immelt, who had been in the position since uh, legend Jack Welch mm. was the uh, CEO. Yep. Now, Jack Welch was famous for um, uh, really consolidating and, and bringing in all of these various uh, industrial aspects to GE. Uh, Jeffrey Immelt uh, took it one step further and created the financial division that almost sent the company broke uh, in the, in the uh, 2008 global financial crisis. Uh, and since then, um, GE has really struggled to uh, reduce its debt levels. Uh, its cash flows have kind of come under significant pressure. Uh, its revenues have declined uh, by around about 35%, 40% over the last um, uh, 13 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, its profits are down somewhere around about um, 65% over the same period of time. And quite clearly, we are seeing the effects of... Uh, uh, a company that has grown through acquisition of uh, businesses that haven't really been meshed together well uh, to, to extract synergies. It is a major conglomerate, mm. and it's done so on the back of debt. And what's become quite obvious is that uh, some of the accounting practices of the business, in order to meet the, the numbers that Wall Street uh-huh. were uh, expecting, um, you know, some of those accounting practices have, have come back to sort of uh, hurt them. Um, and in fact, there's now an SEC investigation uh, going as far back as Jeff Welch's reign as to whether or not they were actually manipulating their share price and manipulating their earnings. Now, if you know anything about the history of Jack Welch and GE during that period of time, Jack Welch was very much famous for beating earnings by about one cent uh, every time he released his results each quarter. Just now, a little increment. <laughs> Yeah, Sergey Bubka did that with his world records for pole vault, and, <laughs> and <laughs> one centimeter. Yeah, and what was uh, what's actually fascinating is that Jack Welsh um, actually uh, explained how he did this in one of his books uh, that he that he wrote after he stepped away from from being uh, right. the CEO of G. And the fascinating thing is that if you were to apply what he did today. Uh, so if you would apply what he did back then, according to today's laws, it's a clear uh, stock and earnings manipulation. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yep. Um, now, I think that uh, I'm not sure what the rules were back then, but, um, you know, obviously that has led to a flow-on effect that has, uh, you know, really masked the true financial position of General Electric and what was actually going on within the business. So it's it's just, it's interesting to see that, you know, such a major industrial powerhouse of the world mm. that uh, you can date it all the way back to the establishment and the creation of the light bulb yeah. um, yep. has now uh, just fallen from grace dramatically and has now 
you know, in the very real prospect of having to, at some point in time in the future, maybe even fall into bankruptcy and, and be restructured. Now, bankruptcy, Chapter 11 in the US, is, is essentially administration, what we yeah. call administration here. Yeah. Joel, though, would you have seen these warning signs as an investor and, and known that this was going to happen? I mean, the warning signs sound like they were fairly clear if you're in the industry. As an amateur investor, I, I wouldn't really know where to look, but from your take? So there are there were clear warning signs. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, look, all you had to do, and, and I keep coming back to this, the most important number when analysing any business is have a look at revenue. What's right. the trend in revenue? But if they're manipulating it, how could you know? Well, even with manipulated earnings, you can actually see that uh, revenue for GE was declining as far back as 2006 right. from its peak in 2000 and, yeah, 2005. In fact, earnings and revenue in GE, sorry, 2008. So revenue uh, with GE has been on decline progressively since 2008 and has never got better. Mm. Uh, in fact, it's declined every year except for 2014. Um, so you could you could make a lot of excuses from that time in 2008, though, because if that's coming off the GFC, well, for the first couple of years of that, uh, every company on the stock market is going down after the financial crisis. Sure they were. However, the, the GE's earned revenue peaked in 2008. Right. And then since 2009, 10, progressively uh, revenues started to decline as the global economy was recovering. So there's something going on. While everyone else is actually seeing sales improve on the back of a recovery from the GFC, GE's revenue was actually still declining in the face right. of a very strong recovery in the, in the global economy. Mm. Uh, profits have, uh, have been falling also since that period of time. So, um, look, if you just look at the numbers and you're just looking for an indication as to whether or not you should be buying this stock, don't buy anything where its revenues are declining. It's very hard to grow profits. And as an ordinary equity investor... You're investing in a business for profits. And one of the hardest things to do for a company is grow profits in the face of declining revenues because basically you may, you're going to have to cut costs. And that's an unsustainable business model. Mm. Yeah. So what about when I go to my financial advisor? Should I be uh, watching you guys and saying, hey, don't invest in that stock if I think that it's going to fall? Or I mean, how do, how do I work this out? How do I, as an amateur investor, work out what stocks to get into? Well, it's, it's okay, how, how do you as an amateur yeah. invest? You, I mean, you obviously need to become educated. Mm. But there's two lines that are the most important when, when determining whether or not this is a company that should be actually invested in. Have a look at the very top line, which says revenue or sales. And if that is flat or declining, you just don't want to actually touch that company. And that's, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the easiest screen. Uh, and GE would have been a, a huge red flag for any investor um, where they haven't been able to consistently grow their top line. Can I add a point to, to Steph's question there? I think a, a lot of our listeners may not have the time or the inclination to want to learn all this stuff. Yeah. So in order to, to make a sound decision, they can outsource the, the knowledge or the understanding, but they can't outsource the accountability. They still need to make sound decisions for their own circumstances so maybe they don't have to learn how to pick these stocks or how to choose the investments but they probably do need to learn how to know who to trust yeah yeah so maybe that's the better question for them is if they're not going to want to learn all this stuff they just need to know how to pick a good advisor mm. but but here's a problem with with what Steph is asking uh, most financial advisors get their information from product providers mm -hmm. mm. and most fund managers are invested in predominantly big companies. Mm. So the, the the generally accepted knowledge is that big companies are relatively safe. 
And that's whether you're talking about consumers or whether you are talking about advisors. So Steph, I think the message that we're trying to get out here is that our philosophy is that big companies don't necessarily mean that they are safe companies. Mm -hmm. And if you're one of our listeners and you're talking to an investment manager or financial advisor that says you should just invest in big blue chip companies, you need to question that philosophy because we're saying that that philosophy is flawed. Mm. Yeah, big doesn't keep you safe. You want to focus on the quality of the business, and um, you know, and that essentially, and particularly, stay away from companies that are carrying heavy debt loads. Okay, when in good times, companies that are carrying heavy debt loads uh, can can cover up their financial performance. They can get a nice tailwind from from you know a surge in the global economy or, or the local economy. But when the tide goes out they're going to really come under pressure because they still have to maintain those repayment levels uh, and yet you're going to have you know, uh, mm-hmm. declining sales and, uh, and, and declining cash flows and it becomes that much harder to survive. Can I ask another question though? If there were so many people still invested in GE, uh, why were they invested? And is that because the fund managers were giving this information over for people to stay invested in, in GE itself? Is that why people were in it? I mean, it, it, it crashes? But well, why did so many people stay? Th- I mean, there's some investors that will get out straight away, yep. uh, but there's other investors that can't get out straight away because there's a lot of money to be sold and they just can't physically sell that much. And then there's other investors who just don't keep their finger on the button as quickly mm-hmm. um, as what others do. Um, and by the time the share price has fallen, what, 85%? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but now that the company is valued at what it is today... Is that a fair valuation? Exactly. So it's yeah. now at a heavy discount. Is it now going to recover or is it now going to decline further? Exactly. And, What's your take on that? <laughs> uh, well, well, I don't know. That depends on the numbers. Yeah, and look, uh, I, I don't think we need to know. I mean, uh, until we start to see the trends in the business turn around, we just stay aside from it. I mean, yeah. there's so yeah. many other stocks and investment mm. opportunities in the market that you don't have to even try and worry about trying to figure out whether or not GE has hit a low and whether or not you know this is the bottom and, and whether or not the business is going to start to turn around now. Just wait for signs mm. that are clearly showing up in the performance of the business and mm. then look to get in after that. And one more question, Louis. When you say that um, a lot of um, investors had a lot of money in there and it's hard to get out at that time, is that better that I start looking for a more boutique agency like a UGC because they've got their finger on the pulse to get out quicker? Yeah, exactly. Very yeah. much so. Uh, the investors that can't get out quickly, the problem they have is that they have too much money invested. Which because, sounds like a GE itself. It's well, a larger... That's right, exactly. Company. Because if you're, if the fund manager is managing billions of dollars under mm. management and they might hold a half billion dollar position in a big company like GE and mm. in Australia, a big fund manager might hold half a billion dollars of BHP shares. Um, that you just can't liquidate that position fast enough mm. to get out of BHP because if they did try and sell half a billion dollars worth of BHP shares on the market today, that would cause chaos on the market. They, they wouldn't be able to sell it at a fair price today because there's just not enough buyers in one day on the stock market. Yeah. There, there were a lot of red flags. I mean, revenue was declining, profits were declining. But you know, as a as an investor in a company and an owner of the shares, you want to also know that management have a line, um, have um, alignment with ordinary passive shareholders. Now, if if, it, if you know anything about Jeffrey Umelt, Jeffrey Umelt used to travel all around America 
with not one private jet, but with two private jets, <laughs> uh, because there was always a concern that if one jet broke down, that he'd need another one to fly out with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, totally agree with him. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, so you know, there's excesses there. I mean, do you really think that flying around with no. two corporate jets is the best? And how different is that philosophy to Warren Buffett's, yeah. who, when he finally got a, their own corporate jet, he named it the Indefensible because he, he always said, I, "I can't justify the expense," but his yeah. time became so valuable with the decisions he was making that it yeah. had to go that way. Yeah. So um, th- there's a lot of red flags, but unfortunately. GE is not the only industrial powerhouse that is has found itself in a, a you know, let's call it a, a huge bag of shit. Um, mm-hmm. Ford and General Motors are in the same situation now. These are these are companies that just haven't learnt their lesson from from the global financial crisis. So Ford today is just one notch above junk uh, in terms of the, its ratings of its bond bonds. GE's bonds are already rated junk. Um, these companies have not made the hard decisions to, to cut expenses, to cut, you know, huge pension obligations. Uh, they had an, an opportunity to restructure their finances when they went into bankruptcy during 2008, 2009. Uh, and uh, basically what had happened was they did a deal with the unions to protect the, the, the employees' pension plans, but they settled themselves with more debts. And basically it was the equity holders and, and the other bond holders that uh, took the haircuts, but not the pension employees. Mm. Um, uh, and are those so the pensions of the employees? And are those companies getting government support at times? And they got purely gov- because they so got big? government handouts. Yeah. Yep, yep. So if they were a smaller business, they'd be dead probably. They, they, yeah. sh- they should be yeah. dead already. Yeah. Or, you know, they wouldn't be. The, the brand of you know of, of Chevrolet and uh, General Motors mm, and, and Chevy. Yeah. These other you know and Ford. They they wouldn't die. They'd just be transferred from poor owners of capital yep. to, to better managers. Better managers of capital. Yeah. Yep. See, that's the funny thing about bankruptcies, right? It's not that these these businesses necessarily disappear and these products necessarily disappear. Bankruptcy just is a, a, me, a method of transferring, mm. you know, uh, assets ownership and control and ownership and control yeah. from you know poor, poor. users of capital to mm. prudent users of capital, and that's what should have happened. And that's why capitalism, when capitalism is allowed to work, that makes the economy much more efficient because. You know, we're able to have the, the the capital and the assets in the in the hands of those who are better stewards of it, which allows for more productive uses of that capital going forward. Yep. I'm I'm going to go back a bit further in history. If you look at car manufacturers in the U.S. in the 80s, uh, early 80s, when they were under pressure from overseas manufacturing for the first time, like Japan, when Japan yep. finally started yeah. hitting its real strides in manufacturing and sent the U.S. car manufacturing into decline, yep. they haven't learned the lessons from them about being competitive and cutting costs, but also Mm. growing revenues and being innovative. Yeah. So there's just an ongoing culture of not learning these lessons. And that's where uh, I will flag Jack Welsh as someone who uh, was ready to make rapid change. Mm. And that is one of his strengths with GE is that he could and did make huge changes to their management Mm. uh, and their their style of doing business. Unfortunately, it didn't sound like it stuck. Uh, with the with the company going into decline after he's left, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, speculation and, and banter about who actually is to blame for the decline of GE, and and there's evidence to suggest that in the latter years of Jack Welsh's reign, that perhaps some of those things that he did in the latter years were missteps. Uh, email, you know, exacerbated those by really pumping up the GE finance line, which mm. was basically lots of loans to consumers, yeah. uh, and they really copped it. 
uh, yep. during the GFC off the back of that division. And I think they've really struggled to, to really pay down those debt burdens that they've had that have turned bad off the back of the G, GFC. Mm. Um, they have sold down assets trying to bring that leverage down, but, man, they've got $100 billion worth of net debt. Yep. $100 billion worth of net debt. And, yep. the, and, the, and GE's stock entire market value yep. is currently worth $100 billion, or even less than that. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said about corporate culture. Yeah. These businesses that have been around a long time, what is their culture? Do they have the ability to learn from their past mistakes and adapt? Yeah. Or do they have a track record of failing, then going into bankruptcy, and then coming out of bankruptcy thanks to government handouts or yeah. subsidies? What is that culture in the business? That's great insight. Thanks, Joel. We'll be back after this short message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Thanks, guys, for all your input today. For and thanks for our, uh, <laughs> for our listeners for tuning in. And we'll be back next week. Okay. Have a great Friday, guys. <laughs> thanks, yeah, Steph. Thanks, Steph. You've been listening to this week's episode of The Investor Exchange. To access this episode's show notes, go to theinvestorexchange.com.au and follow us on Facebook at The Investor Exchange for updates on our latest episodes. This show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Before making any investment decision, contact United Global Capital by emailing ugc.net.au for a personalised, no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Or alternatively, email us at info at ugc.net.au.